0: you're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Good morning, everyone, or I guess generally, hello. How are you? Um, Happy Wednesday. Today's podcast is with Marty Kratzky katz of Blockthrough. He is the co-founder and CEO of the company, and Blockthrough is based out of Toronto. And the startup itself helps with publishers, helps the publishers uh, recoup some of the advertising dollars that they lose out to ad blockers, whilst creating a ad-friendly experience for the actual website's customers. Uh, Marty has been an entrepreneur for close to nine years, and Blockthrough is his third company. So in our conversation, we go through like each of Marty's different startups. The learnings associated with each of them, the bumps and bruises, and the reality, like the true reality of what it's really like to be a founder, and I can tell you, like it's you know not all the roses and just luxury stuff that you see um, with what the the media portrays, and we just get into like the real deal of what it's actually like and why it's really not for the faint of heart. Um, Entrepreneurship, I think, has gone the branding that. It has, it's just really easy to be or call yourself an entrepreneur because the barrier to it is just so low. You can just quit your job and say, I'm an entrepreneur now. But yeah, we, we cover everything in Marty's journey from, you know, finding investors, surviving, just surviving as a company, parting ways with a co-founder, like how do you do that? And just withstanding, you know, the parental pressures that he had to go through of like not being a doctor and Yeah, like these are all issues that he had to go through, and I think these are issues that a lot of different people would face on their own if they wanted to become an entrepreneur. And so this is a conversation I truly, really enjoyed. Um, It's just jam-packed with the real look into the life of an entrepreneur, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I have. And so before I send you off, just a quick reminder, please support the podcast if you like it. Uh, The best way to support it is to give a five-star rating on iTunes and also leaving a uh, review. If you can, like, even just, like, one, a one-sentence review makes a big difference, and if you do, I'll give you a shout-out, so please do that. Um, you know, just give me, like, five minutes of your time on top of the hour you put into listening to my stuff. <laughs> and other than that, uh, if you want to stay in t- in touch with me in terms of my own development, uh, want to be part of my newsletter and, like, just l- read more about my learnings and my blog posts, then please subscribe. Um, you can click the subscribe button at oldmandan.com. And so yeah, thanks a lot. And without further ado, here's my chat with Marty. Hey everyone, welcome back to It For. Today on the podcast, we have Marty Kraski-Katz. He is the co-founder and CEO of Blockthrough. Hey Marty, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And so to begin off, um, would you mind describing Blockthrough to our audience?
1: Yeah, so Blockthrough helps web publishers recover the revenue they lose to ad blocking without upsetting their users. Um, so basically, what that means is is we're a, we have a product that's able to get ads through ad blockers in a way that doesn't get blocked, um, but we make it a really light experience. So no animations, no video, no audio. Um, just a really super light ad experience so the website can make money and you as an ad block user don't need to be prompted to turn off your ad block or you don't need to whitelist the site. Um, it's just a really nice light ad experience that you're willing to tolerate and if you really don't like it, you can go and opt out and turn it off and we'll respect that.
0: Gotcha. And so, for example, for someone like me who runs a blog and event, I don't have enough traffic yet, but when I do and I start getting advertised on it, I would probably be end up using services like yours to help. Recoup some of the revenue I might lose from ad
1: exactly, yeah. So, so, the average web publisher has an ad block rate on, on desktop of like twenty to thirty percent. Um, you know, some industries it's a lot higher. Like in gaming, it's like fifty to seventy percent. Um, and so, basically, if you were using your sort of standard ad networks or ad exchanges to monetize your 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 traffic, um, a certain percentage of that traffic would be running an ad blocker, and uh, that's where that's where we come in. We'd basically you'd run our code and at the end of the month you'd make you know 20 to 30 percent more there's a way to validate how much that is and then we bill you at the end of the month for um, a percentage of that revenue that we've helped you recover gotcha
0: this is
1: i think this is a global phenomenon right it it is yeah yeah so in north america the average uh, ad block rate on desktop is i think 26 percent is the last number i saw Uh, lower than i thought well so yeah so so in our (laughs) in our demographic um it's substantially higher in in the like 18 to 34 uh, age bracket, it's like close to 50%, if not higher. Um, and then, you know, as you go higher in age, then the, the ad block rate decreases. Uh, it does tend to skew a little more male, um, but it globally, it's, it's, I mean, it's mainstream, right? In, in Europe, it's a third of the population uses an ad blocker on desktop. Um, interestingly, mobile ad block rates are substantially lower um, but that's, I think, that's a function of, of um, you know, the adoption just lagging in North America and Europe, um, and then in, in in sort of the rest of the world, um, it's actually inverted. So mobile ad blocking in, in markets like India and China is is much higher than desktop ad blocking, um, probably because they're they're sort of mobile first. There's not a lot of desktop usage. Um, yeah.
0: Oh well, I didn't know that.
1: Sorry, there's more information than you asked for, but no, I I'm there w- it is. I'm, I'm always more fascinated to learn more about different businesses and
0: different worlds. Like, um, I used to like. You know, analyze marketing and advertising companies before, um, and I was at the hedge fund, so I'm always fascinated to learn more about that world. And I'm actually part of that world now, so I might, you know, one day be a customer customer of yours. If, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and so, in terms of, I think we were talking about like the globalization and stuff, but yeah. you yourself are kind of a, you know. Global person, like you, you're a dual citizen.
1: I am, yes. So I'm uh, uh, a Czech Canadian. Um, I was I was born in Canada, born and raised in Canada. Uh, my mom and her family emigrated from Czechoslovakia in 1968 when uh, when the Soviet Union invaded, um, and uh, they were from the Czech part. and uh, And so, growing up in in Canada, I was born in 1985. Uh, grew up uh, born in Montreal. Grew up, grew up mostly in Ottawa, but my grandparents lived around the corner. Um, and I basically grew up in a Czech-speaking house in Canada um, and, and, you know, spoke to my mom and my grandparents exclusively in Czech. Um, and uh, when I was 18 and I found out that I was eligible to get Czech citizenship um, and, and retain my Canadian citizenship, I said, that's a no-rainer. Like, I, I associate with both uh, um, uh, both both the, my Czech side and, and my sort of Canadian uh, uh, upbringing, so it was... Uh, that was sort of how that, that evolved.
0: Gotcha. And you're also fluent in five languages. Yeah, yeah. The second person I've met who's fluent in five languages, and the other person is Estonian. And so I was cool. wondering is that an Eastern European thing?
1: It, I think it is. Um, not I think it is. It definitely is. Um, I think generally, people who are from countries with, with, that have their own language, that speak with, with not a lot of speakers, um, automatically they have to learn like two or three languages just to like be able to communicate with, with their neighbors. Um, and, you know, obviously not a lot of people in the world speak Czech. <laughs> so most people in the Czech Republic speak Czech, they speak English, um, you know, they, they, if they don't speak Slovak, they understand it perfectly because they're very close. Um, and then there's a lot of sort of historical affiliation with, with German-speaking populations and, and obviously with, um, with, with Russia or then the Soviet Union. Um, so a lot of Czechs also speak uh, either German and or Russian. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's part of the heritage is, like, you, as, as a Czech, you, you get exposed to a lot of different languages. Um, and, and in my case, I, you know, growing up in Ottawa, I went to a bilingual school, English and French. Oh, um, gotcha. so, so, yeah, so I, I grew up in a Czech-speaking house. Um, I went to a French school. So by the time I was in grade one, I was speaking English, Czech, and French. Um, and then in high school, I, I started taking Spanish courses. And, and that was what really sort of... Uh, uh, made me realize that I was just totally in love with languages, and I, th- I think they're fascinating. Um, and so when I got to university, um, you know, for for a variety of reasons, I, I you know didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, um, and uh, and I decided I should study something I love. If I'm not going to do something practical, then I should at least enjoy it. Um, so I studied Russian as my major, um, with German as my minor. Um, and then when I finished school, I think I spoke uh, six languages fluently. I've since gotten rusty in Russian, so I I don't count it as fluent anymore, but um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of how that, 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 how, how that came about.
0: Wow. So you're, you're a legit five language fluent speaker. That's amazing. And I think that, I think that's the most, that's the big important part where you said, well, oh, you know, I went, I went to university to study something I love, which is languages. And when I first learned that about you, I was thinking, that's so smart. You should just go learn to study something you want to learn. And like when I was in school, yeah. I, I, it wasn't a minor, but I had a requirement to, to focus all my electives in one area and yeah. mine was in Greco-Roman history Yeah, because that's what I loved and that, those were the only classes where I could just go to class mm-hmm. and not really read the textbook and I'd be fine like I would breeze through it I'd tell my friends that's a bird course man it's so easy yeah. and then they'd all go and get wrecked and tell me <laughs> that was not the case like, you asshole yeah. you lied to me Yeah.
1: Um, no I, th- I, I agree with you I mean like when you're interested in stuff you just you're you want to learn about it
0: yeah and so then after after university you immediately went to being a founder? Of, no, um, I didn't actually. Oh, really? No, no, no.
1: So there was a gap there. Um, so so I'll give you a little more context. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a family of doctors um, and growing up, they always said, you know, Marty, you can do whatever you want as long as you're a doctor. Um, and so the only thing I knew growing up is I don't want to be a fucking doctor. Um, so of course, I told you the part. I got to school, had no idea what I wanted to do, studied languages, um, but while all this was happening, I grew up um, in, I, I guess I, I, it's fair to say that I played a ton of video games, um, and, and they weren't all multiplayer, so I, I spent a lot of time in my parents' basement just sort of on my own, not communicating with other human beings. And so when I got out of But you, but you know a bunch of languages. Yes, exactly. I had nobody to speak to, but I know all these languages. It's really, really useful. Uh, and uh, and so I got to the end of university, and I graduated. I still had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to be an, uh, you know, a translator or a professor. Great, I learned that. Um, and and not knowing what I wanted to do, I, I kind of focused in on you know my own personal growth goals. And I by the time I got to the end of university, I was twenty one, twenty two, and I because I spent all my spare time playing video games, I had no social skills. Um, I really like had bad social anxiety. I would get nervous talking to strangers. Um, and so I kind of realized at that point that I was never going to get anywhere in my career if I was not able to you know. Communicate with strangers or communicate with other people effectively. So I took a sales job um, to challenge myself and, and to try to get out of my shell. Um, and so I, at whatever it was, 22 or so, I, I took a job at uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, T-Booth, yes. uh, like Wireless Wave. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so one of those one of those like cell phone uh, uh, resellers that basically sells all the different uh, provider cell carriers. Um, And so I I worked at T Booth, I I took a break to go to Australia for a bit, but I worked at T Booth for about a year and a half in total, Um, ended up moving, or maybe two years, ended up moving to Rogers at their call center. Um, This was, it would have been 2011, 2010, 2010, sorry. Um, And so it was that experience at Rogers, working at their call center, doing wireless sales, that was the soul draining experience that made me realize I never wanted to work at a big company ever again. Um, I you know I worked there for six months. I, I did you know I did quite well, but I just I felt like it, it was the kind of job where you're you're literally you're just a cog in a wheel. Um, and so and and there ended up being a situation where they weren't paying out my commission correctly. Um, and I was just like okay, like I hate this job. They're not paying me when I'm supposed to get paid. So like why should I even bother showing up? Um, and my roommate at the time was really into startups, and and uh, he you know serendipitously picked up a domain called ratemypolitician.com, um, and he and I were talking about it, and, and you know, we, we kind of came up with this cool little idea where um, you know, we, we looked at that domain and said, okay, well, what if we built a website where any user can go and learn about uh, either their, their representatives in, in public office uh, or candidates for those roles, uh, learn about them, and then you know, rate their policies on various different you know, criteria of the environment or overall or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, there were enough people who, who thought it was a compelling idea that we said, okay, well, if we can, if we can compel a bunch of people to come to the site and, and rate their politicians in various facets, then we're collecting data that's valuable to politicians come election time. And we kind of suspected that maybe we could, uh, um, you know, turn that into some sort of subscription analytics uh, like SaaS business. Um, that would sell to politicians and, and not only allow them to know what people are saying about them and, and, you know, geolocate that, you know, not to the person's house, but, like, you know, the rough neighborhood, then they'd have, like, a smart campaigning tool where they can say, okay, well, in this part of the community, I'm strong on the environment, but I'm weak on the economy, or something like that. Um, and so we, we thought it was a cool idea. Um, I hated my job. And um, and so so I, my, my, my roommate, who then became my co-founder, said, dude, just quit it. Fuck it. We'll start a company. Um, and that was just really, really attractive to me. I, I, honestly, I grew up not knowing that you could do that. I didn't realize it was an option until I was in my like, early to mid 20s, I think it was 24, uh, when we started rate my politician. Um, and so yeah, that's, that's how that came about. We worked on that together for about a year, um, had no idea what we were doing. Uh, so we made a lot of mistakes, but learned a lot. And, uh, and so after about a year, we, we had a product in market, we had a few thousand users, um, but we just had no clear path to, to actually monetizing this thing. Um, and nobody wanted to fund it. Um, so we, we kind of realized that we could either keep, you know, digging a deeper hole and, and trying to make this work, or we could just, you know, shut it down and, and move on to, you know, whatever the next thing would be. Gotcha. Did you have enough saved up to burn through those years? So, yeah, so I I, it's, I was shocked at how lucrative selling cell phones was <laughs> I, I did not realize it, was, it paid so well so I I had some money saved up I blew through all of it trying to build my politician I spent my own personal money I borrowed a little bit of money from friends and family and is I learned a lot of lessons <laughs> right and uh, I, man
0: if you guys kept it going it would have blown up when Trump was going through you know
1: some, a lot of people I,
0: say that probably. I tell the story they're
1: like hey, maybe you were before your time um, maybe it, it's possible I, I you know I don't like to look back and say like what if um, you know, even even if that's the case, I, it was my first company. I still wouldn't have the you know experience to execute on it. I feel it, it was a difficult business to make work, and it's one thing if you have some relevant skill. Like if if uh, you know, well, I was able to sell, but like I I knew nothing about software. I knew nothing about product management. I knew nothing about operations, finance, any of that stuff. I just like I was I was a low level sales guy. Um, and so I think, you know, I needed, you, you need some experience, some relevant experience, um, to, to really thrive as a founder. I feel, um, it doesn't need to be, you know, 10 years of, of management experience, but I, I think like, uh, and that experience can come from failing in one company, um, but you, you do need, you, you, you have to learn a lot really, really fast, um, to, to get it right as a first time founder. Um, and, you know, there's a handful of people who are brilliant enough to pull that off and, um, you know, maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, but I didn't. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm also surprised that you said you, you know, were, you were worried about your social skills earlier on mm-hmm. because, you know, from the past few times that we've chatted, I definitely did not feel that my initial thought was this guy. Well, was, thank you. This guy's so extroverted.
1: Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 just another skill that you can train, and I mean, you you um, you know you, you, you know all about training, um, so so it's 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 not dissimilar. Um, at the end of the day, whether whether you're born with amazing social skills or not, if you practice and make a concerted effort and, and you know, show self-awareness and, and really try to learn from uh, you know, the things that you do wrong, um, you will get better at it, no matter how low your starting point is. Um, and the same is true for me. I, I practiced uh, you know, through, through selling and just through talking to other people. And um, you know, even today, I, I you know, sometimes do silly or say awkward things, but laugh it off and keep moving.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree, and my my first job um, from university was, I did a, my first internship before even I went to the audit world was at a startup, and I did business development, which is a fancy way of saying a lot of cold calling, Yeah, was a startup, <laughs> and so, I, yeah, exactly, exactly, and um, calling like hundreds of companies yeah. a day and getting a lot of fuck yous, um, It it's that's, a way to desensitize you, yeah. yeah, and like you stop taking it personally yeah. most of the time, but still hurts, but... You Get know,
1: better. I, I think everybody should be forced to do a sales job for like, you know, at least three to six months is, you know, obviously never going to happen. But I, I really feel like as a human being, you will become a better human being by by being forced to do sales, um, because it, it, it I think I think you you it, it instills empathy being when people tell you fuck you because you called them because it's your job. It makes you, like, A, It's it, it hurts sometimes, and, and that rejection sucks. Um, but B, it makes you realize, like, man, I never want to be that guy. Yeah. Like, that, this really, really hurt, and, like, I'll get over it, and I'll be fine. But um, to make other people feel that way is just not a good way to, to go about life, whether it's in business or, or whatever. It's just, like, you want – I think real leaders are excel at making the people around them feel good. Um and and when they when when they do well and when when people fuck up they they you know make them understand that it's a learning process and they can get better, um, and people who you know go out of their way to make other people feel like shit, um, well being around those people sucks. Totally,
0: one hundred percent. And also being a sales job also, lets you learn that you can't sell something that you just don't believe in or you hate. Yeah. Which was the case with me, and I think was the case with you for most of the sales jobs, really like selling cell phones. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, like that also makes me makes you think twice about just applying to a bunch of random jobs. To you, actually, I actually want to know about the company and what yeah. the company
1: stands for. At the same time, I think like every a, any product that isn't terrible has has some feature that you can get excited about. I mean, when I was it's selling true. cell phones, it wasn't about like convincing people to want something they didn't. At least not for me. Um, the the approach I took is like, well, like most people are on a shitty plan, and there's probably a better plan out there. And if I can convince somebody that, you know, not only are they going to save 50 bucks a month, but they can get a brand new shiny iPhone on top of that, I mean, that's a compelling value proposition to most people. Oh, right? yeah. And that's something I personally can get excited about was like, dude, I just saved you some money and I got you a new phone. Like, doesn't that work? Um, so I think, I think you know, working, even the, the, you know, most products have some redeeming quality that you can like, you can, you can kind of force right. yourself to get you excited about, your yeah desi- exactly yeah, that's so a good we, way of putting it. naturalize yeah, yeah, yeah. It.
0: um sorry i interrupted you but that's <laughs> no that's, no no uh that's fine and so you know you guys do rate my position and you guys decide after but you know a year year or so okay let's just stop this and what becomes the next move
1: is that when you went back back to school to learn computer science yeah that's correct so um i took I, I did sort of two things at the same time so one is i desperately needed a job because i was fucking broke um and and two, I, I I realized from my from my experience with Rate my politician that even vetting engineers, uh, or, or like getting any sense of whether they have any level of competence, if you've never written a line of code and you don't even understand what it means to write a line of code, like what is that act, like what is an algorithm, um, then it's incredibly hard to vet someone, right? Um, so. I, I kind of had two simultaneous objectives. One is like I wanted to go work at a company that um, that you know obviously was doing well and, and where I could learn some more, but I also wanted to like get technical. Um, and so simultaneously, I went back to school for computer science at Ottawa. It was like on a whim. I they had my transcript on file because that's where I did my first undergrad. And like a week before the deadline, I was like, yeah, maybe I should do this. A friend suggested it, and I did it.
0: So you just applied for another bachelor's, just Yep.
1: Yeah. boom. Yeah, nice. uh, did frosh at twenty five. <laughs> And um, and, uh, and then I sort of, I think within a month of that, I got a job um, working part-time at a company called Fluidware. Um, so they were sort of like, they had a couple products. One, their, their more sort of core product at the time was a product called Fluid Surveys, uh, which was sort of like Canadian Survey Monkey. Um, and so I joined like just as they were starting to go through a period of hypergrowth. I think I was employee number 12 or 13. Um, and when I left that place a year and eight or 10 months later, um, 40 people, something along those lines. Wow. So basically the company quadrupled in size in, in you know, a span of, of whatever it was, a year and a half, two years. So so basically I, I started off at Fluidware um, managing, the, they, they were sort of experimenting with the Spanish-speaking market because uh, I think SurveyMonkey wasn't that strong there and they were like, great, that's an area where we can dive into. Um, and uh, and so I was basically doing, like, everything from customer support to uh, writing copy to, like, um, uh, there's a bunch of other things I can't even remember anymore, but basically I was I was working on the man, managing an AdWords account. I was working um, pretty closely with Aiden, who was uh, founder and, and CEO, um, and uh, and that was a fun experience. But I, I, I think you know, for a variety of factors, it, it never the, the Spanish speaking market never took off. Um, I was kind of more focused on school. Um, and then sort of towards the end of that, I, I switched. They put me in another role where I was focusing on sales and business, mostly sales. And, and there was a couple sort of like experimenting with partnerships and business development stuff, um, selling their other product, which was called Fluid Review. Um, and that was a really cool experience being at a startup that's in hyper growth um, in the SaaS space. I learned a, a, a ton um, from, from not just the experience, but also from, from you know, a, a relatively close relationship that I had with Aiden, um, and uh, who's a super bright guy and um and so yeah the that's basically I, I was in school and i was at fluidware um towards the end of my first year of school i kind of said okay i'm going to put this on pause because i'm this fluidware thing's starting to pick up um and as as i was sort of working at fluidware i i kind of um I, I think from a sales perspective i wasn't performing as well as i could um and and i think the main reason for that is that it just wasn't my own um i think you know most founders um, many founders let's say would, would not be able to do well in a job working for somebody else. Um, and, and certainly at where I don't think I did as well as I could have. Um, and towards the end of my, my tenure there, maybe the last four to six months in my, in my free time, I was working on what would later become my next company. Um, so uh, my next company <laughs> was, uh, was Micrometrics, um, which we did customer experience software for retail chains. Now they're more focused on, there's a company still around, now they're more focused on customer experience software for hotel chains. Um, And so the original idea was, you know, when you walk into a retail store, uh, like a big box brick and mortar retail store, um, the state of the art at the time was for collecting customer experience data or customer feedback um, was a little survey link at the bottom of a receipt, which not a lot of people fill that out. And if you walk into a store and you don't buy anything, you don't get a receipt. So a lot of these businesses collect virtually no data from their non-converting shoppers. Um, and so our idea was that if, if you could you know, build a really, really nice user-friendly um, uh, uh, survey system and deploy it on iPads and kiosks by the exits of the store, then that would be a much more compelling format for people to fill out and you'd be able to collect data from people who walk in and don't buy anything. Um, and so those were the, the two sort of cool tricks that, that the product did. So we were able to collect about an order of magnitude more data um, than those receipt-based surveys. Um, and then on top of that, we we were able to collect data from these non-converting shoppers, um, and so we had some early success getting pilots, paid pilots, with with some major retailers, um, uh, Chapters, Indigo, Hudson's Bay, Roots, and um, and so basically what happened is none of these pi- these pilots, you know, it was great, it was exciting, we made a little bit of money, um, but at the end of the day, they wouldn't convert after the pilot. Um, And and the big big problem with that business was that we needed to get somehow 500 iPads and 500 stands out to all of their locations um, And get somebody to to, you know set those up make sure they're connected to the Wi-Fi make sure they're not going to get stolen There's a lot of sort of logistical problems that needed solving and uh, We felt that there was no elegant way to solve all of those problems while still having a a high-margin business that scales well Right so we made the decision about two and a half years in that we needed to make some changes um, and, and sort of move towards a more scalable product. Uh, my co-founders at the time, um, sorry, my co-founders decided that they wanted to move into the hotel space, um, so they basically wanted to do like surveys through the Wi-Fi um, and then basically power a whole like customer feedback experience system on the basis of that as a starting point. Um, and that's what they do today. They work with some really, really major hotel brands. Um, team is I think 25, 30 people, um, and uh, they're still based in Ottawa. Um, I'm still close with the founder, with the with my co-founders. But basically, we decided at that point uh, they wanted to go in that direction. And I said, honestly, guys, at this stage of my career, I've realized that I find brick and mortar business is incredibly dull, <laughs> and I don't really want to do this anymore. Um, so why don't you buy up my shares? Uh, you can go on to do this hotel thing and, and I'll move uh, I'll go on to do my, my next thing um, and so that was in that would be so we started in 2013 I think beginning of the year and I sold my shares in May of 2015
0: okay so that's
1: your second startup yeah
0: and like how how does that how did it even like begin you're at Fluidware and yep. then you just you just met your co-founders and you guys just had an idea and you're like
1: you know what like the decision is just start a company it's just how, how did it go about? Yeah, so, I mean, there were a few elements to it. So, so one is, I mean, I knew that I wanted to start another company at some point. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm thinking about this entrepreneurship thing. It's like, I've done it once before, I failed. I want to give it another crack. Um, and I had a, a good friend uh, named Artem, who, who is uh, who, who's CEO of Micrometrics now. Um, and, and so Artem and I, we would, we would see each other for coffee like every second day go to the gym together and and when we would meet for coffee we'd kind of and or drinks um we would we would throw ideas back and forth like hey what do you think of this what do you think of this i think one of one of our ideas was like uh this was like just when like right before halo started or just around that time you know halo yeah the yeah. Video, the xbox video game no 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 no, no. i mean i mean uh, sorry the the like uh, taxi halo oh service. the taxi yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's we- actually funny
0: cuz um i on the podcast i just interviewed this week the Canadian head for
1: Halo oh that's funny yeah Justin yeah so that was one of the ideas we were looking at we were like what about this one and we heard about this Halo company we were like ah oh, maybe it's ship has sailed I don't know um, so we had a few ideas and, and then one day we were at I think it was Second Cup um, in in Ottawa and uh, and we were sitting there and there were these these like laminated QR codes or laminated like sheets that were standing upright with like a QR code on it that said like scan this QR code and give us your feedback and I looked at it I was like who the hell does that? Like, I have never scanned a QR code in my life. Like, QR codes just never took off. It was one of those things that everybody thought they were gonna be the next big thing, and like, they just never never materialized, at least not in North America.
0: Yeah, I think China's the only one that actually mainly just kills it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and I, th- I mean, I, there, I think there are lots of structural reasons for that, but um, the bottom line is, like, they never took off in North America, and here's a business that, like, is 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 selling a product, Me- meaning the, the, the guys who did the, the like, the, the software behind the QR stuff. Um, and they're like building a product based on this really, really shitty, non-engaging, non-com- or non-compelling, uncompelling uh, uh, format, which is scan a QR code. Um, and so we started to think like, well, it's not a retail business, but like how do businesses like this collect data? Um, and so we, we looked at doing, you know, restaurants, we looked at doing retail, we looked at a few different markets and, and we really settled on retail. Um, and, and so, so sorry, I kind of jumped ahead there. So So basically we had this idea, I think it was like January of 2015, um, there was this because I was still in school like taking one course at the time um, there was this this um, Competition through the university that we were eligible for which gave, I think it was startup garage you get like 20,000 bucks as a grant um, And we're like fuck it. Like why don't we just put something together put together an application? Um, and we, we hacked together a prototype we basically like built a SurveyMonkey survey put it on an iPad and like went to a buddy of ours who, who had a small retail shop and said like Hey, do you want to run this like in your store and just see like we bought a stand and see how many people fill it out. And over the first month, I think he got something like three hundred signups or signups three hundred participants. Like um, just, just people just signing, just giving their feedback. No incentive, nothing. Giving their feedback, and then the incentive was like give us your email address and we'll send you a coupon. Um, and and people did it. And, we, and so we, we basically, in, in that application, we pointed out that we already had a customer. <laughs> and, um, and, and long story short, it was, it was like, oh, like it all, it all happened very quickly within a span of a couple months. And they said yes, like you, or they said yes. They, they awarded us one of the grants. Um, and so we would have free office space and 20,000 bucks as a starting point. Um, and $20,000 is not a lot of money, but we were like, okay, like maybe we can do some more. And I think we, we won a couple other competitions. We ended up scraping together, I think over the first summer, like 50 to 70 grand. Um, and Just that, of like government grants, government or? grants and, and various things like that. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think at some point, I think it was May or so. That's when I, when I, you know, sat down with Aiden, bought him dinner and said, sorry, man, I'm leaving. Um, and he was very supportive. Um, and uh, and so yeah, that was that was how Micrometrics got started. It was it was sort of evenings and weekends like applying for business plan competitions and, and uh and you know, getting a couple customers. I think we had another one or two pilot customers early on. I can't remember anymore. I've erased a lot of those memories. But um, <laughs> but yeah. Wow. And you mentioned earlier that your parents always said
0: be a doctor. You can do anything you want but be a doctor. Yeah. Um, were they still nagging at you after the second start to oh. go back to school and be a doctor? Or did they give up on that after you
1: had read my politician? I mean, no. So, so that didn't stop for a long time. Um, so I, I, was, I was lucky enough to be to, to be awarded a 40 under 40 award in Ottawa um, just after I left Micrometrics. Um, and I think that was the point where they stopped telling me I, could, I should go be a doctor because there was something in the newspaper that said like, oh, like this guy kind of knows what he's doing. Um so so that w- until right up until that point like literally until like weeks before they were all like you know Martin it's not too late you can go be a doctor um which has not happened and will not happen I think they've come to terms with it now
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering what did you want to be when you were like 7 It's probably not a doctor
1: I don't know like fighter jet pilot or jet fighter pilot I I, I don't know man I I, I honestly I I don't know if it's that I've worked too many hours, but I don't have too many memories of my childhood anymore. <laughs> um, or, or yeah, yeah. I, I, I honestly don't even remember. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know that there was anything that I like firmly wanted to be. I, I think there. I, I went through like a phase or two where I was like, I wanna be a policeman. And then like six months later, I wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. And then, you know, I, I, I honestly, through my teens, I, I just wanted to sit at home and play video games. I was like, what can I do that will allow me to sit at home and play video games all day? Um, and I think I, stuck on, I sat on that one for, like, close to a decade. <laughs> and so you, you ended up selling your sh- shares in, like, metro, Micrometrics. Correct.
0: And now you're on the prowl for the next company.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so chronologically, yeah, in 2015, I, uh, I, I sold my shares yeah. um, in Blockthrough, uh, sorry, in, block through in Micrometrics. And, um, you know, there's a longer story, but the, the short story is I spent the, the, the summer looking at a few different ideas. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, after a long period, actually, how, how PG is this? Um, can, it's... Can I tell the full story if it's a little like... Oh, yeah, it's all, it's
0: all um, explicit content. Cool, great. Yeah. So,
1: so what, what, the full story is that, uh, is that in the summer of 2015, um, I, I was looking at a few different ideas. Um, late one night, I ended up at an exotic dance bar with a friend of mine. In Ottawa? Uh, this was in, in Gatineau which is on the, on the Quebec side.
0: Yeah, more um, likely there than Ottawa.
1: Which, is, which Gatineau is renowned for its, its, for its exotic dance bars. Um, and, and so I was, I was sitting there with a friend and I wanted to get a private dance. Um, and I didn't have cash and I didn't have a debit card so I couldn't withdraw any cash. And I thought to myself, this is fucking crazy, it's 2015 and I, I can't pay for a private dance uh, with an exotic dancer um, without, you know, with my credit card or my phone, it's, this is bananas. Um, and so I turned to my buddy and and I kind of said, "Imagine if they had this sexy l- little lace garter with a chip that facilitated credit card payments." Um, and I, I he's like, "Dude, that's hilarious!" But like, you should look into that because Square is never going to go into it. <laughs> it's just a market they're not going to touch. Um, so I said, "And imagine if that was called Tap That." <laughs> wow! So you really thought about this? I, I, yeah, I thought it was really funny. I I, I have a tendency to like. To, to go really deep on things that I, that I think are hilarious, um, and so the next morning I, I kind of sobered up and I, I started to think about it some more. I'm like, it really is an untapped market. Gotta tap that. So, yeah. <laughs> so so I started doing some research, and and I, I can't even remember the numbers, but it was something absurd. It was something like fifty billion dollars worldwide spent in that industry. Um, I, I don't know how reliable my sources were, but it, it was a number big enough to make me think,
0: hmm. Oh, dude, um, like when I was an auditor, I used to yeah. audit. Investment banks, yeah. and when you met, when you audit the small ones, yeah. auditors look at round numbers because those are like you know someone's actually manually put that in. It's not a normal transaction, so we go ask them, "What's this petty cash of like ten thousand dollars?" Yeah, and then I remember the CFO saying, "One of the traders likes uh, to go have fun, and he likes to be paid out in cash." <laughs> so, That's funny. Yeah, it's, um, it's
1: a big place, a big market for sure. <laughs> so so. You know, I, was, I started to look, look, think about this seriously. I'm like, could this be a viable business? Um, but more importantly, I was looking for a good co-founder. I was looking for an engineer that I could start a business with that you know, I ultimately would find interesting. Um, and, and I felt like the story was a really, really good filter um, because if I pitch you, tap that, and you don't find it funny or amusing in any way, we're not going to work well together. Like I'm going to say much stupider shit than this and if you can't deal with this, then like, sorry, man, we're not a fit, like it's not gonna work out. Um, so so that I, I kind of like, I, on the one hand, I was legitimately doing the research. I was talking with dancers, I was talking with club owners and like seeing like, is like, what would be the go to market? You know, how would this work? Um, like building a viable business case for it while at the same time, mostly just looking for a co-founder that, you know, not only thought this was funny, but that I could work well together. And, and, uh, and so what ended up happening is, is I I went to a startup festival, Startup Fest, um, the aptly named Startup Fest, um, in Montreal. And and I basically, I was walking around with these flashy red sunglasses, drinking beers all day, pitching people, tap that. Um, And they have a grandma attend, and I even pitched the grandmas, which is what you're supposed to do. They thought it was hilarious. Um, And uh, and so I met this this really bright engineer named Chris um, who thought tap that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. And we even, we, you know, over, over beers Together, we're even coming up with new product ideas. We're like, well, once this takes off, we can launch a bracelet for bartenders called Just the Tip. Um, and and <laughs> launch a whole line of, of, of wearable payment systems that are based on sexual innuendo. Um, so, oh, that's so, so good. Isn't it? It's, it's great. So, it's actually
0: a great idea. Thank
1: you. Thank you. Um and, and so I just want somebody to build it, man. Yeah, I don't even care. Yeah, I hope um, someone listens to this. Yeah, it. you want to throw me a point or two, that's great, but like go for it, man. Um, and so so Chris and I, we go our separate ways. At the time he's living in Toronto. I'm living in Ottawa, and we we keep in touch. He gives me his number or his e- email or whatever we keep in touch. We're talking like for three weeks we're talking almost every single day about how we're going to get tapped that off the ground. And after about three weeks, we were like, fuck, like, this is wearable, so we're gonna need a ton of money. It's gonna take years before we get a product into market. There's also payments, and there's a lot of, like, there's some harder problems to solve around that. Um, plus, like, for both of us, it was number three. Neither of us has ever, you know, hit an out-of-the-park home run. Um, and, you know, if you fail on your third company, and it's a stripper payment app, <laughs> And, you know, how do you explain that to investors? Like, yeah, third time, fourth time entrepreneur. Like, what was the last one? Oh, stripper payment system, didn't work out. Like, we just felt like it was a bit of a, like, gamble with our careers, uh, with our entrepreneurial careers. So, um, so we kind of said, okay, well, let's put that one on the back burner. Let's talk through some other ideas that we've had. Um, And so we went through two or three before he said, wait, hold on, dude, did did I not tell you what, what I've been working on in my basement for the last six months, what I was looking for a co-founder for? I was like, no, you never brought it up. Um, and, And so he tells me that he's, Built this technology that's able to um, get ads through ad blockers in a way that can't be blocked, but also make it a lighter, faster experience. Um, and I looked at this and I thought, well, A, I know nothing about ad tech, but fuck it, I can learn it. Um, B, I use an ad blocker, and I'm also a previous business owner. So I understand that, that you know, websites need to make money. But being an ad block user, I also understand that I actually don't mind a light ad experience. Right, I don't mind seeing ads. What my what bothers me is like the interruptive nature. You know, some people don't like the privacy invasion. Some people don't like the risk of malware. Uh, or I think most people don't like the risk of malware, but some people aren't aware that ads can have malware. Um, and and so I kind of looked at this and said like this makes total sense. Like yeah, if a user has an ad blocker, they need to be monetized somehow. And if they're okay with a lighter experience, why not do that? Um, and then lastly, the thing that I've, I I found sort of equally compelling is at the end of the day our product, our value to publishers is we make you more money without negatively impacting your user experience. Um, and having come from two previous businesses that were centered around like, you know, collecting more data or collecting data sets you don't have before, I learned that if you're starting a B2B, uh, if you're building a B2B product and there's no clear way to tie the use of that product to either making more money or saving money, then nobody's gonna care, right? Um, and, and so to have a product that literally makes people more money, a quantifiable amount of additive revenue, and that you can price on a revenue share model, it's brilliant, it's free money. It's To publishers, is zero, like, fic- there's no cost to the product beyond, you know, the time it takes to set it up. Um, and so I found that as a third-time entrepreneur who, who you know, had a couple, uh, you know, uh, one total failure and one sort of, like, minor financial success, but, like, the product really didn't take off. Um, to me that was very important to have something that, that was that that just had a very clear and compelling value proposition to its customers.
0: Gotcha. And you've been operating Blockthrough for close to about three years now, right? Yeah.
1: We had our three year anniversary a month and a half ago. Nice. Yeah.
0: And you know, from our previous chats, I think I learned that Block didn't necessarily have like, the easiest no. runway. Like, your <laughs> success I think has been relatively recent in like the past like six that months or so, right? That is
1: Absolutely correct. Um, so, so the first two, two and a half years of the company's history just fucking sucked. Um, we went through, we tried to launch three iterations, three separate iterations of the product, all of which did the same thing but were architected slightly differently. Um, they all failed. They, they just weren't able to generate revenue for publishers or publishers weren't interested in sort of how we, excuse me, how we'd set up the product. And it wasn't until we made some changes towards the end of last year to our to our strategy um, and to, to the architecture of the product um, that that we sort of turned things around. Um, so the first two two and a half years, we never had more than three months, four months of runway. Um, we never succeeded in raising a full round. It was I call it pay as you go financing. It was like angel check here, angel check there, government grant here, uh, you know, working capital loan there, um, literally just enough to keep the lights on. Um, and then second half of last year, as I mentioned, we made some changes, um, kind of rebooted the team, and relaunched the product in March uh, of this year. Um, and after relaunching the product, we went from a hundred bucks a month in revenue in March um, to, to this month. We're on track to do like one hundred thirty-five thousand in about seven or eight months. Um, and there was a period of six straight months where we doubled every month, um, which which was just incredibly exciting and and you know. Just, just really, really fulfilling considering the, the previous three years of grind or two and a half years of grind. Um, so yeah, so now we're now we're in growth mode. We've you know we the product that, that really were, that that really took off. Um, we were five people, um, you know, four months ago, five months ago, um, and so we've gone up to I think we're twelve or thirteen now. Huh. Um, in a very very quick period of time. Yeah. And um, and yeah, we've as as I talked to you before the recording started. Um, we we just closed around of financing. Uh, we're in the process of, uh, of another transaction which will go live soon um, uh, or which we'll announce soon and uh, things, are, things are looking good for us and, and you know what's interesting is that the space we're in is a very challenging space um, there is not only is ad tech as as a sector very complicated and, and very uh, difficult to understand for for somebody who's just getting into it um, but on top of that the ad blocking sort of niche of, of ad tech is has this very, very nasty sort of cat-and-mouse dynamic between the ad blockers and, and the companies who were trying to monetize the, the, the uh, traffic. And really, nobody had solved the problem. No, nobody had figured that out in an elegant way until, until we launched our product in March. Um, and, um, and yeah, when, when we relaunched that product, we, we were the first ones to figure it out. We, we, you know, it, it's difficult to deny from the numbers that, that we found product market fit. And we've we've permanently solved that cat and mouse problem, um, and uh, and now we're seeing our competitors try to try to replicate what we're doing. Um, so it's 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 a good feeling, but at the same time, it's like fuck, we got to stay ahead of these guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a constant competition, right? Every battle you got to win. Yeah. Or try yeah. to win at least. Yeah,
1: exactly. So. And how
0: what was it like actually getting that kind of Finding investors to get financing, like I'm. Oh, it from, fucking
1: sucked. I, I hate fundraising so much. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe in six months I'll be like, you know what, like, I've learned enough now. It's it's you know now I know how it works, but like, I, I just, I never had success in the early days, like it. Maybe in the first year, year and a half, we raised like I don't know eighty thousand. And um, like, and, how do you how do you find these angel
0: investors? Like, is it is it just like how I meet people? Like you just go to go on LinkedIn and message them and say, hey, I got this company.
1: This is my idea. I mean that's one way. Um, I mean that's probably so. Like the lowest hanging fruit is like, if you know any angel investors, then they're likely to invest because they know you and they trust you, and or hopefully they trust you and and uh, they they believe that you'll you know put in the hard work to, to make it to make it work. Um, there are different types of angels, right? There there are angels who think they're VCs and they invest like VCs. Um, There are angels who really are very founder focused and just want to invest in people that they like and and believe in and and they want to see them succeed And they're less focused on the return and more focused on like yeah It'd be great to see a return, but I I want to pay it forward because when I was an entrepreneur, you know, my angels helped me Um, And and then there's sort of like the friends and family who like don't invest a lot But like they like you and they're willing to bet on you Um, and, and so I think you know I, I encountered all three. It took me a while to realize that like different angels invest differently, um, and and really I, I think what happened with in in, in our scenario is that um, I I got so um, when when you know when you're selling and you just get rejected like eight times in a row you get in this funk and where, where you're just like you're you're not doing well anymore because you're in this funk. I I was in a two and a half year fundraising funk where, where like the early days, nobody would invest in us because we didn't know the space. Um, and, and they're like, well, I don't believe that you can pull this off. And then, you know, as things got along, they're like, well, like you're two years in, you don't have revenue, like, why would I invest? Um, and and so it, it just, it, honestly, it was a lot of like, just keep grinding and find the people that, that believe in us uh, and, and as a team. And uh, we, I mean, we barely pulled it off. There were multiple times where we had less than a thousand bucks in the account. We needed to make payroll. And, and that was sort of the cardinal rule for, for me is like, I never want to miss payroll. I never want to be that guy who doesn't pay his people. Um, and so I can, I can proudly say I've never missed payroll. Um, but it was, it was very difficult to pull that off. And, and again, it, until just very recently, we'd never had more than $200,000 in our account, Uh um, for the company, right? for the, the company, company, that's correct. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, I, I wear it as a badge of honor now. I'm, 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 you know, I think survive, you know, somebody who was it? Um, it was an angel that I talked to in San Francisco who he didn't end up investing, but he, as I was describing to him, like the, st- the story of the company, he's like, oh, you're a cockroach. Uh, I was like, I'm sorry. He's like, yeah, like cockroach. Like cockroaches know how to survive. Uh, and I think he got that from, like, Paul Graham from Y Combinator, somebody from Y Combinator. Yeah, something about, like, surviving is practically the, the main thing that matters. Well, really. well, that's the thing is, like, if, you know, the way I view it is the longer you keep trying and the longer you, you survive and, and keep going at it, the higher the probability that you're su- you, you'll succeed. So, like, even if you don't have maybe the same natural gifts of a Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, whatever example you want to use, um, even if you don't have the same natural gifts, you um, as long as you have a learning mentality and you just don't fucking stop, if you're relentless, um, eventually your your probability of succeeding goes, you know, approaches a hundred. Um, and and that's sort of how I viewed it. I mean, if you look at my my story, I started my first company eight and a half years ago, and it took me you know eight and a half years to get to the point where where you know we're now I'm now you know the founder of a of a high growth company, and as recently as six years ago. I was an entrepreneur who'd been at it for eight years, without much success, um, and and so I've I, I find that dynamic interesting. I I've, it's you know there's that saying that like I'm gonna mangle. I always do this. I always screw up sayings, but it's something like um, you know you're you're nobody's successful until they are, right? Um, anyhow, so so I'm I'm going I'm rambling now, but um, the idea for me is like if if you're relentless and you keep pushing and you're persistent then. Eventually you'll pull it off, yeah, and I guess you know just
0: weeding kind of, um, off of what you just said about yeah like eight years ago you weren't but eight now like close to nine years you are uh, you know running a high growth success uh, high growth startup tech company, and I feel a lot of people will probably only look at it this year and say, oh cool, but there was like eight years where you had to teach it yep. And, Ate a lot uh, of shit. Yeah, <laughs> and I remember like what what really hit me as like yeah entrepreneurship is really fucking hard was when you you were telling me about your journey and earlier on when we first met and you're saying how yeah I don't think I've ever paid myself more than fifty k in like a
1: full year. Yeah, so that changed about a month ago. Now yeah. I'm making a salary of hundred k. Wow, Good for um, you. You. doubled. Uh, yeah. But but like no I, until until this year, um, I'd never in in any of my companies in in previous jobs um, I'd made well. Depending on if you count commission or not, but 50k was sort of like the highest salary I'd ever earned, um, working at one of my own companies, and and not for a very long period of time. And so. I think that's
0: that's the thing with founders, right? Like you you want to see your company succeed, and so yeah. you'd rather invest back into the company. And
1: I think I think that's the hallmark one of the hallmarks of good founders, um, is is they're willing to do that. I think any you know any founder who's not willing to to like take a low salary or not take a salary, it, I mean it's not guaranteed that they won't succeed, um, but it's indicative of the fact that, uh, you know, unless they have kids, and that's obviously a different situation, but um, it's indicative of the fact that, that, you know, maybe they don't have the the grind, the internal grind necessary to get there. could be. Um, I remember reading about the, do you know Wayfair, the online furniture company? I've heard
0: of them, I don't know their story. Uh, They're practically like a, I think they're close to like an $8 billion company now, like the IPO and everything, and the founder, he's. He still only takes an eighty k salary um he's always kept it at that and he's only just stated that the whole time because he's like, it's good yeah I don't need it um, yeah and but yeah like um that part definitely resonated me with like great founders or founders who care about the business and in your journey of you know eating shit <laughs> um shit journey Is it's um is there a like a very the most like memorable moment that you have where you just felt like this is, this, is the, this is the thing that's going to kill me. But if I go over it, I think I'll I think
1: it'll be all okay. I, I mean, block through, was, block through has been very hard. Um, you know, it's, it's, now, now it's great, and, like, I'm, I'm fucking thrilled about the direction. Um, but, you know, the, I, I would say, like, the last year leading up to, last year and a half leading up to, say, June of this year. June of this year is when it started to look like, okay, like, this thing is really taking off. Even as, I mean even even May it was like oh cool like we went from thousand to ten thousand a month but like now what like is it going to keep going is something going to fall apart I, I, you know at a certain point you kind of get PTSD and you're like something's going to go wrong I know it like this, this is not going to work out for some reason that I haven't anticipated um, and and this time it didn't but as as you know the, the year and a half before that it just fucking sucked um, and and it was it was really tough and and I had to at one point let go of my co-founder. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, the the, the the only founder left, if you will, um, and it's it's a really. I, I told myself, you know, eight years ago, I would never be a solo founder, and it's it's sort of had to. It sort of happened out of necessity, um, but it was it was just incredibly hard uh, being alone and and having to figure out how you're going to pay these people salaries. People who are depending on you. People who have kids. Um, it it was emotionally very difficult. And, and I found myself, you know, as recently as, as as February, March, so this is like right as we're launching this iteration of the product, which today we know it took off and everything's great. Um, but as recently as February, March, I was, I was taking meetings with potential aqua hirers to, to line up a backup plan. Basically like, hey, we're launching a fourth iteration of the product. We think it's gonna be the best thing since sliced bread. But if it doesn't work out, like, I've been working on this for almost three years. I'm not going to keep, you know, going through this a- emotional agony, um, you know, for a company that's clearly not taking off. Um, and I was having conversations with with people about like, hey, like if we start to go under, like, are you going to be there to buy us? Um, and and I basically set a cliff for myself. I said like, if we don't reach twenty thousand a month by the end of June, by the end of Q two, I'm selling. Like Q three is like I'm selling the company. That's all I'm doing. Um, and so, in in March we did 100 bucks in revenue. In April we did a thousand. In May we did something like 9,500. And June we hit 23,000. Really close. Yeah. And and I mean, like, if we'd hit 19, I probably would have kept going. Like, right, I'm, right. I'm the kind of guy that like, oh, right, okay, we're seeing Cock- some cockroach. Some, yeah, yeah, I'm cockroach. <laughs> I, I just, we'll, we'll take 15. That's yeah. fine. Um, but we hit 23, and and everything sort of flipped. It was it was now like, oh shit, like we're we're earning revenue, like. Now, like customer money is coming in to save my ass with payroll, not like investor money. This is great, um, and and you know, we kept doubling it. The next month we did forty-seven thousand. The next month we did a hundred thousand, um, and and it just I mean that, that's what catalyzed the round. That's what catalyzed you know the the other transaction. So so I, you know I guess by the time this goes out it'll be announced. Um, but we're we're acquiring um, the the assets of a of a defunct competitor. Um, ironically, the competitor is one of the guys that I talked with in February about buying us if we went belly up. Um wow, that's crazy. And yeah, it's wild, wild. Um and so, you know, their fortunes unfortunately inverted, they're really super, super awesome guys and, and you know it's it's unfortunate for them, but um it it just it's it's wild when you look back and say, like, wow, I was this close to capitulating. Um and to and and you know, now look at everything.
0: Yeah. Man, man, I I have a lot more questions I want to ask, but I know you're a busy guy, so in the how, how are we doing for time? I think uh, um, we're to the end, yeah, right. we're coming to the end. Unfortunately, so we might do a part two. I'm 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 game. Yeah, I've done a part cool. two for, with a few guests that we've run out of time on as well, and so I'm definitely we'll find some time in your schedule in awesome. the near future. But um, look I, forward to part two. Yeah, but uh, like the final rounds um of the interview, I like to ask a couple of questions that cool. every interview. Where I like to hear the answers of. First question is um. If your twenty-year-old self were to look at you now, yeah, so third-year Marty from Yobatawa, Ottawa, what do you think his emotional reaction would be to where you're at, running block through?
1: I would, I would probably not believe it. Like my twenty-year-old self, yeah, yeah, I'd be like, "What are you fucking talking about? Yeah. I just want to play video games." <laughs> yeah, um, no, like twenty, I wouldn't have believed it at all. Um, Twenty-five, I'd be like, "Oh, cool, I made it. Like that's that's great. Like I'd be thrilled." Um, yeah, twenty. I just I would be like, what universe did I step into? Like this, this doesn't make any sense. I I didn't even have those ambitions when I was twenty. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, any advice you would like to give that twenty-year-old? Yeah. Or, wh-
0: advice that you wish you had?
1: Um, just like make a concerted effort to get out of your shell yeah. and to to do things that scare you and and that challenge you and and that will force you to learn.
0: Excellent. All right, great. Great, Marty. Thanks. Thanks. For, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thanks I for having Had a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use your music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.